Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and Corridor Aesthetics.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Samantha McIntosh, filling in for Ben Kiefer this week. Coming up in this hour, we'll talk about assisted living incidents across the state that have hit the headlines. IPR's Katarina Sestarek will share about efforts at the state house to give child sex abuse victims more time to sue their abusers. And we'll talk about how the state's largest school district is taking steps to prevent opioid overdoses. But first, the U.S. Supreme Court is set to hear oral arguments next week in a case that would impact pork producers, especially Iowa, which is the largest pork-producing state in the U.S. IPR's own Katie Pikus recently took an in-depth look at this case in partnership with Harvest Public Media, and she joins us now. Hi, Katie. Hey, Samantha. Tell us about this case that is going to the Supreme Court. Sure. So a little bit of background. So back in 2018, uh, voters in California passed a ballot measure that had to deal with animal welfare. And uh, this ballot measure was called Proposition 12. And it had different provisions for breeding pigs, egg laying hens, and calves raised for veal. And the measure said businesses can't sell meat from animals that have been confined in certain ways. It set certain housing standards for breeding pigs, saying that breeding sows must have at least 24 square feet of space per pig and be able to turn around in order for their meat to be sold in the state. So this measure was passed by more than 60% of voters who voted for it in California. But here in Iowa, which, as you said, is the top pork producing state, um, a lot of pork producers don't meet that requirement. And um, it happened so that, you know, two major pork industry groups, the National Pork Producers Council and the American Farm Bureau Federation, they sued in 2019. They're basically saying Proposition 12 would hurt pork producers' livelihoods and the pork supply chain. Um, They've argued this case before. It was argued in front of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Their argument was dismissed. The law was upheld. But then they appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they chose to hear that case. And uh, we'll hear the oral arguments for that case in the National Pork Producers Council versus Ross uh, next uh, Tuesday. So why does California's Proposition 12 weigh so much for these major pork industry groups? Sure. So I visited a uh, hog operation in northwest Iowa, and um, I spoke with farmer Dwight Mogler. And um, the breeding stalls that he uses for his hog operation Each uh, breeding sow has about 15 square feet of floor space. Um, But Dwight said that the sows actually spend uh, most of their time in group pens, which have more space. But bottom line, because of these breeding stalls, the pork from his sows and their offspring wouldn't be able to be sold in California. Now, pork producers are concerned that they're losing a major market. I mean, California has a big population. It accounts for, you know, 13% of the U.S. pork market. 
And you've got the National Pork Producers Council saying, hey, this is a big market, but also we can't control where the pork goes. And then therefore, all producers in the U.S. have to follow California's regulations. So there's kind of a big argument over how that's been interpreted because you have other people saying, no, just the portion of hogs needed to satisfy California's market needs to comply with the law. Why do these major pork industry groups feel that SCOTUS should rule in their favor? What do you think the arguments are there? Sure. So the major question of this case, you know, simplified down is can one state regulate the commerce of other states? And um, the National Pork Producers Council and the American Farm Bureau Federation say that Proposition 12 is unconstitutional. And their reason for that is uh, they're saying Proposition 12 creates a burden on farmers who don't live in California. They're calling that a violation of the Dormant Commerce Clause, which is a clause implied in the Constitution that says one state can't pass legislation that burdens commerce of other states. So um, the National Pork Producers Council and the American Farm Bureau Federation are pointing to Proposition 12, and they're saying this reaches far, really far outside of California. It imposes these very specific standards on farmers, and farmers are going to have to pay a lot of money to renovate their farms to uh, fit Proposition 12's requirements. Animal welfare is at the heart of California's Proposition 12. What did you hear from those advocates? And what do hog producers such as Dwight, who you featured, where do they you know, sit on this issue? Sure. So I spoke with the Humane Society of the United States. I spoke with Josh Balk, the vice president of Farm Animal Protection. And uh, the Humane Society, they supported California's ballot initiative Josh and I spoke and he said, you know, confining mother pigs in cages where they can't turn around is cruel. It's inhumane. He said it leads to health and food issues. Um, He also said, you know, voters do care about animal treatment and food safety, which is why, you know, this ballot initiative got more than 60% of the vote. Yet at the same time, animal welfare means different things to different people. You know, in in speaking with Dwight Mogler and visiting his hog operation, he said he deeply cares about animal welfare and, you know, the breeding stalls where pigs stay for up to a week. You know, they're not in these small stalls in Dwight Mogler's operation year round. It's just up to a week while they're going through a certain period where they basically, they're ready to be bred. They get moody, sometimes aggressive towards one another. So Dwight puts them in these individual pens for just up to a week. And he said, you know, it prevents them from fighting or biting each other. I mean, he said the only reason they do this is to protect the animal. So there really is that debate from both sides over, you know, what does animal welfare actually mean for the industry? Well, there's many voices that you feature in this expansive nationwide issue of a story that was produced in partnership with Harvest Public Media, which you can find at iowapublicradio.org. IPR's agriculture reporter, Katie Pikus. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Samantha. 
It's a Friday news buzz river to river. I'm Samantha McIntosh in for Ben Kiefer this week. In the past five and a half years, the Iowa Board of Nursing Home Administrators has taken public disciplinary action against an Iowa-licensed administrator on only two occasions, most recently in 2020, this according to Iowa Capital Dispatch reporter Clark Kaufman, who has written on multiple nursing and assisted living incidents in recent weeks, one of which has resulted in a murder charge. Clark Kaufman joins us now to talk about these incidents. Clark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Your most recent story tells of a wheelchair-bound resident who was deliberately locked out of a Dubuque nursing home. Can you tell us more? Yeah, this was a situation in which the administrator of the Dubuque home, Dubuque Specialty Care, uh, he'd been in the job only for about three days on June 22nd when he implemented sort of a strict enforcement of a no-smoking policy. This policy banned residents from going outside and smoking anywhere on the company property. One of the residents who was used to doing this objected, and he was apparently uh, warned by the director of nursing that if he left the building to go outside and smoke, he wouldn't be let back in. And that's apparently what happened. The man sat outside on the sidewalk across the street from the home until 4 a.m., at which point he called a taxi, but he fell while trying to get into the cab and had to be taken to a hospital. You know, in in the 30 years that I've been covering nursing homes, I've covered plenty of situations where residents have wandered away from a care facility unknown to the staff. And sometimes those end in tragic results, of course. But this is the first time I've seen a situation where a care facility deliberately and knowingly locked a resident outside overnight. Yes, and with this facility and with the rule change of uh, no smoking on campus, is this, I mean, was this pretty standard or protocol as far as changing these sorts of rules for a residential living facility? Well, the process seems to be the issue. uh, According to the administrator, they'd always had a policy that prohibited folks from smoking anywhere on on the grounds, inside or outside, uh, but that policy was never enforced. The new administrator came on board and was enforcing what he said was a longstanding policy, but he did it without having it committed to writing. There seemed to be some disagreement as to what the implications of this would be, you know, disagreement even among the staff. And of course, residents weren't given any warning that this was happening. So state inspectors noted all of that when they imposed a $20,000 fine against the uh, facility. So a $20,000 fine, what does this really mean for a Dubuque nursing home and for the administrator and the resident that was involved here? What kind of moves forward for them? Uh, the $20,000 fine specifically doesn't mean much at all because it's a it's on paper only. The fine is held in suspension And so it's not really imposed. The home doesn't have to pay it while the federal government looks at the situation because these are federal regulations that apply to nursing homes. The state simply enforces them. So the federal government will look at this now and decide whether or not a fine that's either larger, probably larger, or smaller will be imposed. But along with that, the home has to file with the state what it calls a plan of correction, which basically states that uh, we're not going to let this happen again. We've got rules in place that we are going to follow. And typically, the rules that they have in place are the rules that they've had in place all along. It's, it's difficult to say, but it may not have much effect at all. Yeah. 
Well, another story you recently wrote uh, was in response to a state citation that was issued in September, but in regards to a March incident in Wright County. So what has happened over the last several months there? Yeah, this this is a situation involving uh, Clarion Wellness, uh, which is a care facility in Wright County. Basically, the, the situation there was that a resident had a grab bar installed on their bed. It's basically a metal bar that allows them to reposition themselves in bed more easily. But these kinds of devices are known to have some significant risks. So they shouldn't be installed without a safety review in place and without the resident's uh, family being made aware so that the, the risk can be assessed. In this particular case, that assessment never happened. The resident fell partly out of bed head first and their head became wedged between the bed and the dresser. So they were suspended upside down and unable to breathe in that position. The resident died. I've I've seen that particular situation happen in other Iowa care facilities, and it's happened nationally too. So there, there has always been a lot of concern about these bed rail devices, which are designed to protect residents, but they also carry certain risks. An upsetting account you share there and tragic for the family. And the last story I want to mention uh, for you is in connection to a Polk County murder trial set to begin in November. Tell us more about this case. Yeah, this is involving a, a death at Courtyard Estates, which is an assisted living center in Bondurant. There was a fairly low-level worker there who doesn't appear to have been certified or licensed in any way who is tasked with checking on a particular resident throughout the night, at least once an hour. She didn't check on that resident the way she was supposed to, according to the state. And as a result, the resident wandered out of the facility after piling some of her belongings right by the exit door. She wandered outside this happened in January, you know, in the middle of winter. The resident froze to death right outside the door. The worker in that case has been charged with second-degree murder. These stories are so distressing, I think, for those who have family members in elder care facilities. With these stories that you've recently reported on, what does this say about the state of elder care here in Iowa? Well, it, it, it's not good. I, you know, I'm not sure that it's good in any state, but in Iowa, it, it may very well be worse than it is in uh, some other states. In one recent case that I looked at, uh, DIA, which is the Department of Inspections and Appeals that oversees nursing homes in Iowa, it acknowledged an Iowan's complaint about the care that a relative of hers was getting inside an Iowa nursing home, but it didn't go investigate that complaint for 14 months by which time the complainant's relative had been dead for six months. And the complaint was substantiated, but of course that was of little consolation to the, uh, to the resident's relative and, and family members. Um, so in looking at that, I had asked the Department of Inspections and Appeals about uh, what was happening here. They had acknowledged that during the pandemic, the number of uninvestigated complaints against nursing homes had just ballooned. And in June, there were 410 complaints pending that were at least 30 days old. And there were 201, almost half the total number of pending complaints that were more than 120 days old. So even when there is a complaint, even when the state inspectors have some reason to believe that there's people in jeopardy, 
the inspectors can be pretty slow to, to get to the scene. Well, thank you so much, Clark, for your reporting on on these cases and what's going on across the state of Iowa. Clark Kaufman, reporter for Iowa Capital Dispatch. Clark, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River. I'm Samantha McIntosh. Last year, the Iowa legislature removed the time limit on county attorneys filing criminal charges related to child sex abuse. But child abuse victims and advocates say the state still falls short on prosecuting assailants. IPR state government reporter Katerina Sestarek joins us now to tell us about her recent reporting on one victim seeking justice. Katerina, thanks for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me. Far too often, I think, we hear of adolescents who are sexually abused by those who are believed to be trusted adults, whether it's a school staff member or even someone in their household. Your story tells of a victim of child sex abuse who is currently unable to seek retribution from the perpetrator. Tell us more. Right. So I interviewed someone named Sarah, and we're not using her last name because she was afraid it would um, hurt her attempts to hold this person accountable. Um, But she tells a story of being, um, essentially, she calls it, she was groomed and sexually assaulted by a teacher when she was a teenager in high school. Um, And this is something that continued for a couple of years into her freshman year of college. And she didn't really realize that it was grooming and sexual assault until recently, and she's now in her mid-30s. And so this is something that she started trying to figure out, you know, what can I do about this? This person is still a teacher um, now in Illinois, and she wanted to make sure that this teacher didn't have access to kids anymore Um, because she also found out that he had at least one other victim who he did something very similar to in another state. Um, And she soon found out that she just, there was no avenue for her to go through the courts to hold this person accountable. What is it you mean exactly by, you know, not being able to do anything in the courts? I mean, for someone who's in their mid-30s, what are the options here in Iowa? Right now, there really aren't any um, because of the way Iowa's laws are written. So there's two different ways that people could go after a child sex abuser in the courts. One is through the criminal courts and one is through the civil. On the criminal side, county prosecutors decide to press charges. Um, Sarah, the survivor, filed a police report, but she had already timed out of the time limit that was previously put on filing charges against child sex abusers. So before the law was 15 years after you turn 18 is the time limit on when they can go after an abuser in the criminal court system. Now, the Iowa legislature took that time limit away last year, which Sarah, other survivors and advocates say is a great thing, but it's not retroactive. So for people who had already timed out, they still can't go after their abusers via the criminal courts. So that option was gone for Sarah and for many others. Um, And then the other option would be through the civil courts, which is where a survivor like Sarah would choose to bring a lawsuit against their abuser and maybe also against the employer like the school district that employed this person and and didn't protect students from him. Um, And some states have taken steps to remove that time limit. That can be made retroactive. So if people had already timed out, they can go back and still file a lawsuit um, and try to hold that person accountable for their actions and try to protect other kids from them as well, as Sarah was seeking to do. 
Um, but Iowa's time limit for most victims of child sex abuse is 19 years old. So at that point, you know, experts say there's all these studies that show victims of child sex abuse often don't come forward with their stories until much, much later in life. Um, and so that's something that, you know, they see as inadequate because people just aren't ready at the age of 19, for the most part, to start a lawsuit against someone who abused them as a child. And your article um, talks about, you know, some state lawmakers who tried uh, this past session to either extend or end that civil statute of limitations. Can you tell us more about where the holdup was in getting that passed in the legislature? Right. So, yeah, this effort has been going on for several years, um, mainly led by Democratic Senator Janet Peterson. This is something that she's really been advocating for for a while. She's filed bills pretty much every year. There's also some Republicans who support it. Um, I talked to Republican Senator Brad Zahn. And since Republicans control the Iowa legislature right now, um, they get to decide what bills are going to get a vote and get signed into law. Um, and so what Senator Zahn has told me is that he just hasn't been able to get enough support from the other Republicans on his committee to advance these proposals. Um, and that their main hangup is that because, you know, these cases can happen decades, you know, decades after the abuse takes place, um, that people are worried there will be false claims of abuse and that people will just be going after money in the courts. Um, and then it'll be hard to defend against those cases when, you know, evidence has um, dissipated over those many, many years. Um, but experts in this area say that false claims in these cases are extremely rare. And those uh, survivors still have to prove their cases in court. What's the outlook right now, you know, for upcoming legislative sessions? Well, it is possible that since, you know, the legislature was able to move on getting rid of the time limit on criminal statute of limitations for child sex abuse charges that, you know, maybe that indicates there is more support now for, for the civil side as well. Um, but it just seems that until, you know, some of these Republican lawmakers who have disagreed with this policy change are convinced, um, and as long as Republicans remain in charge, then, you know, that's not going to change unless they change their minds. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for shedding further light on this issue, Katerina. Thanks, Samantha. Katerina Sestarek, state government reporter for Iowa Public Radio. A listener note that the National Sexual Assault Hotline is available 24-7 at 1-800-656-4673. And other resources are available at rainn.org. Later in the hour, we'll talk with a Des Moines public school official about the district taking steps to avoid opioid drug overdoses. We'll also continue our celebration of a century of Iowa Public Radio with an installment of What Dennis Found in the Basement. And we'll groove into the weekend with Cece Mitchell of IPR Studio One. I'm Samantha McIntosh, back in just a moment with more of this News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com.
It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Samantha McIntosh, filling in for Ben Kiefer this week. Coming up in the second half, as part of IPR's celebration of a century of radio, we'll hear another installment of what Dennis found in the basement with retired IPR midday host Dennis Reese and historian Tim Walsh. And we'll groove into the weekend with CeCe Mitchell of Studio One. But first... Governor Kim Reynolds and Attorney General Tom Miller have both issued calls this year to prevent fentanyl-related deaths, as opioid overdose deaths in Iowans increased by 21 percent from 2020 to 2021. That's according to the Iowa Department of Public Health. What's also increased is access to the counteracting drug naloxone, also trademarked as Narcan, which can reverse overdoses and prevent death. According to IDPH, emergency medical services administering doses has increased by 50 percent from fiscal year 2018 to 2021. The Des Moines School Board made a decision this week to equip the staff with Narcan. Health Services Supervisor for Des Moines Public Schools, Melissa Abbott, is here to share more. Melissa, thanks for joining River to River. Yes, thank you, Sam. Melissa, Tell us more about the Des Moines School Board's uh, decision that they made this week. Yeah, I'm really excited to announce that the school board did pass unanimously and approved for each and every building within the district to have at least two stocked doses of Narcan, which can be used to administer during a time of suspected opioid abuse. Is this within you know each of the school buildings in the district will have these two doses? Yes, each and every building, which we have over 60 buildings in the district. And one thing that was part of the proposal is we're all about students, and that is our primary focus, but we also have staff and visitors who come in the building. So Narcan is going to be in each and every building, so it can be used for not only students who may be experiencing an opioid overdose, but uh, staff or visitors who are coming into the building as well. Tell us more about Narcan. How is it administered? Uh, we are getting the nasal spray Narcan, and it is just a spray in the nostril of the nose, and that can be administered by anyone. Currently, all of our RNs we have in each and every building have been trained on this medication, and our ultimate goal is to train our medication-certified staff in each building and then branch that out to the community at large, just in case the nurse isn't in the building or med-certified staff aren't in the building, anyone would be able to administer that uh, should they have had the training. So why was this a decision that the school board felt they should make uh, for, for the school district? I planted this seed back in May. I started working on the proposal just because we have seen an uptick in opioid overdoses within our county, state, and nationally. And I did poll the nurses last year, and based off of what they reported, they would have used Narcan as an intervention if it was available to them 11 times during the last school year. So, you know, this is something that I hope we never have to to use, but we know that Sometimes these are accidental overdoses, and we also know that sometimes good people make bad decisions. So if this is a tool that we can have in our toolkit available as an early intervention to administer to hopefully save even just one life, it's definitely worth it. 
One thing to keep in mind that if someone is experiencing what we think are signs and symptoms of an opioid overdose and we administer Narcan and perhaps their signs and symptoms were due to some other uh, health-related issue that was going on, there's no harm with Narcan um, in giving it to someone even if they haven't or even if they aren't actually experiencing an opioid overdose. This policy that was approved this past week, um, what what does the cost look like for the Des Moines School District, and how is it being funded? So at this time, there's not going to be a financial impact to the district. There is a grant through the state of Iowa Department of Health and Human Services where schools are allowed to uh, order the Narcan through this grant-funded program and receive the doses. And I believe this was only just made possible by the Iowa legislature. Yes, they passed a House file 2573 in June, which was an act that created funds relating to the abatement of and response to opioid use, which then allowed school districts to obtain prescriptions uh, for Narcan. For those who are who are curious parents out there and others listening, what is the effects of the administration of it uh, for those who, who may be suffering from uh, an overdose? What, what is the experience like for them? And what is the protocol that you're giving staff as far as what are the next steps to, to take for that particular student or, or someone else who may be uh, in the building that you're addressing? Sure. So after the first dose of Narcan is administered, what will happen is the the person, should they be experiencing an opioid overdose, will actually start to to come out of that. And when that happens, they can be very belligerent because they were just completely out and all of a sudden they're now waking up. It's almost like coming out of anesthesia from surgery. And so part of the training is, you know, we don't want to hover over somebody after we administer it. We want to back up and make sure that they are are safe. Um, Once the person starts to come out of that, that is when a second dose can be used if it's warranted. And all of that is part of the training. But one important thing that I want to point out is that just because we have the intervention of Narcan, it doesn't take away any of our current EMS protocols. So once a person is unconscious, we're going to administer Narcan, we're activating the EMS protocol right away, which is calling 911. Uh, We're very fortunate here in Des Moines to have EMS pretty close to us, so their response time is is pretty minimal. So they would still be called, come to the, the building, and then take over care from there. Opioid overdose prevention has certainly been the headlines for Iowa and nationally in recent years and recent months. How else is Des Moines Public Schools trying to combat opioid use so it doesn't have to come to using Narcan? So part of our training is the prevention side of things as well, because we never want this to happen. So each and every nurse is trained on different resources within our community, and we have a lot of community partnerships that we as a district have with um, others out in the area. And so if we know that someone is having an issue with substance abuse, we will refer them uh, to get the help that they need. If for some reason we don't know that someone has an issue and they experiencing or they experience an opioid overdose at uh, one of our buildings and we administer Narcan, then after the fact, we'll have that conversation um, to to give them the resources that they need to potentially get, get help and get treatment. 
Des Moines Public Schools Health Services Supervisor, Melissa Abbott. Thanks for joining the program. Yes, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. We've been celebrating the 100th birthdays of two of the bigger stations here in our Iowa Public Radio network, WSUI and WOI. They are 100 years old. And so that means it's time for another in our series, What Dennis Found in the Basement. What Dennis found in the basement, it's a look at uh, some of the archives, um, the memorabilia we have connected with the radio of yesteryear found in the basement of the Iowa City uh, location of pub- Iowa Public Radio. Joining me in the studio, uh, Dennis Reese, retired IPR midday host, a longtime collector of radio knowledge and radio artifacts. Uh, hi, Dennis. Hi, Ben. Tim Walsh is with us as as well, historian, director emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum. Tim, great to have you back as well. Good to be here. You are a duo teaming up, making sense of what is just a treasure trove of old-time radio things from the basement in Iowa City. Dennis, what have you found for us this time? In the basement is a truly wonderful 1939 air check, the entire broadcast day from September 21st, 1939, of Washington, D.C., CBS affiliate WJSV, beginning with Arthur Godfrey's morning show called The Sundial. Now, I'm not sure who put the tapes down there. It may have been me, actually. But they were commercially reproduced in the 80s. At any rate, this is the ultimate radio time machine opportunity. Luckily, some nice person has made available the entire 19-hour day on the archive.org website. So you know about that. 39 reels, uh, transcriptions were cut back on that day. You just can't believe how different radio was back then. And if you look at the entire schedule, Tim, totally different world. Oh, absolutely. But what's important here is that they chose September 21st, 1939. And you might say, well, why that day? Well, I'm not sure. They they probably did it for reasons unknown to us. But it turns out from an historian's perspective, 1939 was an extraordinary year. And just in the few months before this recording, we have Marian Anderson, the extraordinary African-American singer, singing at Uh, The Lincoln Memorial that is is well known, uh, Breaking the Color Barrier. John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath was published. The World's Fair opened in New York. Batman and Superman were published for the first time. Uh, So there was an extraordinary amount of activity going on. Uh, The Wizard of Oz appeared for the first time in theaters. But most important, probably from world history perspective, on September 1st, 1939, the world was at war. Germany and, and Japan attacked uh, uh, Great Britain. And, and so we began uh, uh, a world war that, uh, that lasted for the next five years. So it was an important day. Yeah. And, and so, uh, Dennis, we have a little, a little bit of Arthur Godfrey, who would be a well-known name to anyone listening to radio in right, 1939. The old, the old redhead himself, Arthur Godfrey, who showed up everywhere on radio and TV for decades. He was relaxed and personable, but to be honest, guys, he sounded a bit hungover on this transcription. Uh, see if you agree. 629 and a half. Good morning, one and all. 
is the sundial, WJSV, Washington, D.C. Any music you hear is record D. This is Thursday morning, September the 21st. If I am not mistook, took with the mistake, this is the um, autumnal equinox, isn't it? Today? Yeah, it would be. I speck it is. This is the first day of fall, officially, isn't it? I do believe it is. Mm-hmm. I sort of had a hunch. Wow. From 1939 there. What an It sounded like thing. Arthur Godfrey doing an imitation of Arthur yeah. Godfrey. <laughs> yeah, right. He had that yeah. mellow voice, and anyone who remembers him from radio or television and other programs will, will hear a, a distinctive sound. But, boy, did he sound under the weather, let's say. Another yeah. clip from this transcription, I think, is, is uh, from 1939. Uh, we have an example of what we would have heard in a newscast. Radio news was really in its infancy. If you have a chance to listen to some of these hours on archive.org, you'll notice a thing that occurred to me, the first newscast, Ben and Tim, was at 8 a.m. Can you imagine that? Just mm-hmm. outside of prime morning programming. And it had a different sound. In fact, the newscast was sponsored by... Arrow beer. And <laughs> here's what the 8 o'clock newscast sounded like. 8 o'clock, 8 bells, WJSV, Washington, D.C., the sundial. The music is recorded. Here's Joe King with the news. This is your Arrow News reporter with last-minute hit-the-spot news, brought to you four times daily through the courtesy of Arrow Beer and Ale. Arrow Beer has such a remarkably fine taste that it's making more new friends than any other brand of beer that's sold in Washington. Here in Washington, you can get this outstandingly fine beer for only 10 cents a bottle. Arrow beer always hits the spot. Well, both sides in the European war appear to be marking time. Germany is rushing thousands of troops and supplies to the Western Front. The Allies likewise are massing strength at the foot of the Nazi West Wall. There are apparently well-founded reports that Britain and France have decided on a major offensive against the German fortifications. Hey, a little taste of the newscast from 1939. Arrow beer was 10 cents a bottle, Ben. Was, you, would have, you would have bought a lot of that there right, was, at the time for there was that more, price, right? more information about Arrow beer than the news of the day, <laughs> even right. though we well, just started a, a, a world war there weeks beforehand. Yeah. Tim, give us a sense of, uh, of uh, past the clips that we've right. heard of, of what radio meant to people, what role it played in their lives, and what people would have heard throughout the day. I think what's important to realize because we have so much in the way of of media and and sound that comes into our worlds these days is that the radio was a portal to the rest of the world. And for people living on the plains of North Dakota or uh, any other part of, of, say, rural Iowa, um, this was a a way to to learn what was going on. And so you were looking for variety. And a day like September 21st, you could get the news from Joe King, but you could also learn what happened lately to Pretty Kitty Kelly, uh, a a, soap soap opera. opera sponsored by Wonder Bread. And you mentioned earlier, sponsors were really king. So they would uh, name the programs often. It would become the uh, certified bread news hour or something along those lines. It wouldn't be an hour, but uh, the, the program. Uh, and, and so you'd get great variety. You'd go from a soap opera and, in fact, multiple soap operas. On that day, you went from, say, Pretty Kitty Kelly to Merton Marge to Hilltop House to Stepmother, all soap operas, (laughs) all running 15 minutes at a time. So you were tuning in every day to hear that. But also then more seriously, and we're going to play a clip 
from a speech by Franklin Roosevelt to Congress called Cash and Carry. It was Roosevelt's address to a special session of Congress calling for an end to the United States arms embargo on warring nations. The news, of course, had set it up. The Allies needed help. Roosevelt was making the case. Now you can hear the shouts and the roar of the crowd as President Roosevelt starts to walk up towards the speaker's platform on the arm of Brigadier General Watson, his secretary. Behind him is his bodyguard, Tom Qualters. The ovation continues for the president as he stands there and now lifts his splendid head to smile at the crowd in his usual manner. He stands there quietly for a moment and in just, I think in just a minute now, President Roosevelt will begin his speech. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. Mr. President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and the House of Representatives. I have asked the Congress to reassemble in extraordinary session in order that it may consider and act on the amendment of certain legislation. Okay. Uh, President Roosevelt, in this transcription from 1939, we have to remember, this is a good more than two years before the United States yes. entered the war right. after uh, December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor Day. There was a strong isolationist impulse in this country that Europe's war should be Europe's problem and that we should not enter the war. Roosevelt was uh, making the case uh, uh, to a to aid the Allies, at least to be able to sell. I think that speech was called Cash and Carry, so we were selling weapons to them. Uh, and it was the beginning of the change in our policy, slowly but surely, but it would be two more years. And just want to mention the CBS reporter who introduced that, John Charles Daly. Does that ring a bell, guys? <laughs> right. Longtime host of What's My Line that ran mm -hmm. until 1967. On TV, he was a, sort of a cub reporter back then. A lot of television hosts that we com came to know later in the 50s and 60s started out as radio announcers, yeah. and Charles, John Charles Daly was one of them. Okay. Yeah. Well, we've come to uh, the end of this uh, episode of What Dennis Found in the Basement, picking up archive material, recordings, memorabilia in this series, What Dennis Found in the Basement, with Dennis Reese, retired IPR midday host and uh, historian Tim Walsh. Uh, what a doozy that was, to use an old-time word. <laughs> doozy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Tim and Dennis, until next time, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. As always, to wrap up our Friday News Buzz edition of River to River, we'll groove into the weekend with one of our Studio One hosts, Cece Mitchell. Cece, how are you doing today? Hey, Sam, I'm doing well. How are you? Good. I'm excited to hear some good tracks from you. You always pick excellent stuff. So what new tracks do you have for us this week? So on our Studio One All Access show on the weekend, we try to preview artists that are going to be playing in Iowa soon. So next weekend, uh, people will be hearing an interview between me and Chicago artist Namdi. He has a new album out today, and he's kicking off his fall tour in Davenport on October 18th. He has this really cool, like, fresh style of hip-hop that I think a lot of people will really like. So here's one of the singles from that new album. It's called I Don't Want to Be Famous by Nambi. I don't really want to be famous, though. I just called my agent up. They said that my price went up. I said, nah, that's not enough. Well, that you can see me always dropping freebies. They still call me greedy, though. We got bills that's adding up. Trying to get my status up. I don't really want to be famous. I just want a million blue faces.
Chicago artist Namdi right there with "I Don't Want to Be Famous," kind of an irreverent seeming guy. At least from watching his music video,、uh, he seems like a pretty、uh, interesting, funny gentleman. And、uh, and you said he's going to be performing in Davenport. Yep, he'll start off his fall tour at Raccoon Motel in Davenport on October 18th. Great, and、uh, and you'll be featuring him on All Access before then. Yep, that'll be on the fifteenth on Saturday. Awesome, looking forward to it. So, what is your last track to、uh, groove into the weekend with us? So, our next one is something completely different. It's new music from Montreal trio Men I Trust. They've got a new one-off single, so not in preview of an album or anything, just a one-off. It's punky, it's groovy, and I think it's perfect to groove us into the weekend. So, this is Men I Trust. With their new track, Billy Poppy. Billy cares to hold me, but I found a mountain headed upside down. Billy dressing easy, and I do enjoy the way he talks me now. Pulling me, dragging me. Montreal trio Men I Trust with the song Billy Toppy, a nice eclectic couple of tracks you provided for us, Cece. And how else can we find out about the latest and greatest music from Studio One? Well, you can listen to Studio One tracks at seven o'clock each night here on IPR's、uh, news slash Studio One signal, and then we also have our new show, Studio One All Access. That's from one to four p.m. on Saturdays and seven to ten p.m. on Sundays. Okay, well, we'll close out the show with more of Billy Toppy. Thanks, Cece, for joining us. Thanks for having me, Cece Mitchell, IPR Studio One host. River to River is produced by Danny Gear, myself, and Caitlin Troutman. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Samantha McIntosh. Have a great weekend. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine. Offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com.